I want you to join me this morning in my time machine. We're going to go back 2,300 years to the afternoon of the day that Jesus rose from the dead that we just sang about. I want you to come back with me in my time machine and picture yourself on that day. You've become a follower of Jesus. You've heard his, his teachings. You were there and heard him give the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek and blessed are the peacemakers and so on. You were there when he gave that great sermon about the bread of life. You witnessed the miracles that Jesus performed. He gave sight to people that were blind. You were there. He cleansed lepers. You were there. He even raised people from the dead. You were there. You have been following Jesus, listening to Him teach, watching Him perform great miracles. But then, three days ago, you saw him arrested, tried, beaten, hung on a cross, where you watched him take his last breath. And now this morning, these women come and they say, the grave's empty. The body's gone. How are you, how are you responding as a follower of this man, Jesus? This one who you came to believe was the Messiah, the anointed one. The one you had come to believe was going to finally remove the Romans from your land. Push away that oppression. Push away that taxation. All that that represented. What are you feeling? How are you responding? No one expected Jesus to rise from the dead. Well, that's not entirely true. None of the followers of Jesus expected him to rise from the dead, even though he had said what? The Son of Man is going to be delivered over. He's going to be killed. And on the third day, he's going to rise again. How many times did he say that? Several. Not a single one of his followers believed that was true. Who gave, who gave the slightest amount of credence to the declaration that he would return from the dead? Who was it? The Pharisees. The Pharisees, after Jesus was entombed, went to Pilate and said to Pilate, We need to post a guard at the tomb. Why? Because he said he was going to come back after three days. The only people that gave any credence to what Jesus had promised to do were the Pharisees. Do you find that comical? I do. And so here we are, followers of Jesus. 
tomb is empty, and we don't know what's happened. And so I want you to come with me this morning to Luke chapter 24, where Jesus has an encounter with two of his followers on the road from Jerusalem back to their hometown, I believe, their town of Emmaus. And I want you to come to this portion of Scripture, and as much as is possible, try to place yourself in this passage this morning. Try to put yourself on this dirt road, traveling seven miles from Jerusalem to the little village of Emmaus. And here we are, these many years later, being able to look back and see this encounter that Jesus had and perhaps learn some lessons from, from what we observe here. You know, one of the most valuable possessions that you can have when you come to this book is curiosity. What is this saying? What is this all about? How does this connect with me today? And I come to this passage with so much curiosity, questions I would love to have the answers to. Jesus has risen from the dead. The women have come back to the 11 apostles and the rest of the followers of Jesus who are all gathered together and hiding out. And they tell them that Jesus is risen from the dead. And then two of them head home. And so in verse 13, I want to begin reading. Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. There's a key phrase that runs through here, by the way. I've underlined it uh, in my Bible. These things, these things, things. So kind of notice that as it goes along. And so they're, they're talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which had happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? I love that. What things? <laughs> and they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? 
Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. And they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up at that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. While they were still telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there that day? There's three things that impress me in this, in this story. And I've got so much curiosity and so many questions. But I want you to notice with me, first of all, that they shared a heart-stirring discussion. These two men on the road to Emmaus. One of my questions, as I read this passage, and maybe one of the questions you think of as you listen to it, is who are these two guys? Who are they? One guy is named Cleopas. Guess how much we know about him from our New Testament. I've already told you what we know. His name is Cleopas. After that, we know Zip. How about the other dude that's with him? Nothing. So, I'm thinking to myself, so, who's the other guy? Maybe it's not a guy. Maybe it's his wife. Or maybe it's his son. Maybe it's just a neighbor who also lives in Emmaus. It's interesting, if you read some of the commentaries, uh, some suggest the possibility that it was Luke. I don't think so. Others suggest it was Peter. That doesn't make any sense as I read the context of the passage where the eleven were the whole time. And so here's two unknown dudes. They're not celebrities. They're not the apostles. There's just two common, ordinary, unknown guys. And Jesus shows up for them. Aren't you glad Jesus shows up for us who aren't that big a deal in life? He just shows up. And and that's kind of the big theme in this portion, that, that he just shows up. So, who are these guys... And then my second question, so where is this place they're going to? I think there's a map up here that David's going to put up for you. It's showing you kind of the relative uh, relationship. Yellow arrow is Jerusalem. Red arrow is Emmaus. Seven miles. If you have the old King James, what's it say? Nobody has the old King James. 600 stadia. You have to translate that into miles. So it's a seven mile walk. From Jerusalem to Emmaus. How long would it take you to walk seven miles? 
Well, the average person walks two and a half to three miles an hour. So, for the average person walking at a, their normal walking speed, it would take at least a couple hours, right? I figure at my walking speed, I could do it in about an hour and 45 minutes. My dad was a mailman. I walked fast since I was you know, walking. But I don't think in their emotional state they were walking full speed, do you? And I just think, here they are on this isolated, dusty road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, two unknown dudes going home. When did this event take place? What's the text tell us? The day that Jesus rose from the dead. That day. <clears throat> Whether it was late morning, early afternoon, it's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. No welcome back banners in downtown Jerusalem. No big announcements that Jesus is back. What's, what's their emotional state? Sad. One word in verse 17 sums it all up. Sad. They are discouraged. They are disappointed. They are in despair. They are despondent. I'm running out of D words. Help me out. Um, they're, they're at the lowest place possible. They have been following Jesus... Listening to him teach, seeing his miracles, believing he's going to deliver them from Rome, and he's dead. <laughs> In verse 15, it says, describing this, what I call heart stirring conversation. In verse 15, it describes their conversation as talking and discussing. One commentator says it was an animated, heated conversation. I'll bet. And I pointed out to you before I read the phrase, these things that goes through this passage multiple times. What do you, what do you think they were talking about? What was, the, what was the content of that conversation? What were they talking about? And in my mind, I'm thinking... So, they're, they're doing like a, a replay of everything they've experienced. Well, he did this, he said this. And they're, they're just replaying. The crucifixion, the fear of what might happen to them. They've killed Jesus, what's going to happen to us? I wonder what they were talking about. I wonder if in their minds they're reviewing the probability of whether or not this Jesus was really the Messiah. If you were expecting the Messiah to deliver you from Rome, and now this man is dead, what are the odds of this man being that Messiah? Not good. Not good. Not good at all. And so, in my mind, I'm thinking in this curiosity, what are they talking about? Bottom line is, they're sad, distraught, despairing. 
did Jesus do in the midst of their sorrow, despair, despondency? What does Jesus do? I just told you a few minutes ago. What does Jesus do? He shows up. He shows up. And if I read my text carefully, it says in verse 15. Are you looking at verse 15? Yes. Does your Bible say Jesus approached? You're near. In my Bible, there's a word in between the Jesus name and the word approach. Himself. Himself. Jesus himself. The Jesus who rose from the dead that morning, he shows up himself. Jesus doesn't send an angel or some other messenger. Jesus Himself shows up in the midst of their sorrow and their despair and their depression. Has there ever been a time in your life when you didn't understand what God was doing? I'm the only one with my hand in the air. How many times in your life have you not been able to figure out what God was doing? Lots of times. What if, instead of encountering those difficult times, what if instead of focusing on the circumstances and events that we're wrapped up in, what if we were focused instead on Jesus showing up? One of the truths that we miss in so much of Scripture is that we read, and even this is true in our own experience, we think God is absent. God's not here. And if He's not here, what does that prove? He doesn't care. And one of the great truths of Scripture is that God may be appearing to us as being absent. But he's really simply hidden. We don't see it. I've been doing something this year that I haven't done in a long time. Um, I always read portions of scripture every day. At least that's my plan. This year I'm reading from Genesis to Revelation. Which I don't like to do very often, frankly. And lots of good reasons, I think. A lot of people like to do that, and that's good. But one of the things that I've noticed this year as I've been reading that I haven't paid a whole lot of attention to, in the book of Ruth, for example, you have four chapters. I'm kind of getting off point here, but this is okay, right? Um, In Ruth, there's four chapters that describe this significant event because Ruth and her husband Boaz are in the genealogy of Jesus, right? From King David to Jesus. You got that? And so these four chapters are really critical. But how many times in the book of Ruth is God mentioned? Twice. Chapter 1 and chapter 4. And as you're reading in Ruth, you, you get kind of the impression that what the author is trying to say to you is, well, it just so happened that Ruth went to glean in the field of 
Boaz. It just happened. And then in chapter 4, when Boaz is getting ready to talk to the man who's the closer possible redeemer for Ruth, um, Boaz is at the city gate where the elders are gathered and making decisions. And it just so happened that this other potential redeemer was passing by. And if you're paying attention, you're reading the book of Ruth, you're going, so God doesn't get a whole lot of press in Ruth's story, but if you pay attention, guess what? He's hidden, but not absent. The book of Esther is the same way. I haven't gotten to Esther yet. She's still down the road here. Um, But the book of Esther is the same way. You read that Esther's like nine chapters. Someone help me out here. Um, And it's the same deal. But God is not absent. He is hidden. And so I come to this this chapter, this story, where these guys don't recognize Jesus. Why not? I think part of it is Jesus wants them to discover truth before they discover truth. I got so many questions in this this passage Um, but I love the words Jesus himself approached and if you're like me there's been times in your life where you didn't understand what God was doing you were confused maybe angry sad for sure And the truth is scripture that I learned as I watched these two guys on the road with Jesus. Jesus always shows up. We just don't always see him. Maybe we need to look a little more closer. So we see Jesus when he shows up. Hidden, but not absent. Jesus himself approached them. He must have been a fast walker, too, because he caught up to him, right? So they're having this this discussion about all these things that they've experienced. And is Jesus really the Messiah? And what went wrong? And how come the leaders didn't accept him? And and this whole conversation is going on, and, and Jesus approaches. And then Jesus asks them this incredibly intelligent question. And the question he asks them is what? What things? I just... I find that incredibly funny. What things? This would be like... This would be like... The afternoon of September 11th, 2001. And you're having conversation with somebody who says... What airplanes? And it's like... Where have you been? And Jesus says... What things? And their response is what? Are you the only person here who's clueless? And so Cleopas then tells Jesus this heartbreaking story. And the heartbreaking story is what? Jesus, this prophet, was arrested and crucified by our leaders. Heartbreaking story. I I don't know if these guys cried telling the story, but they had to be on the, the edge 
of telling the story. And there's a phrase in the middle of the story, one sentence, that is, <laughs> it's the, the most heartbreaking part of the story. He says, what things, and Cleopas tells him the story, how the chief priest did this and that. And in verse 21, he says this, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. What does that sentence tell you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. lost faith. There, the word were, we were hoping. What does the word were hoping suggest to you? Past tense. Past tense. It's all over. What's, what's that, Amy? We're not hoping anymore. Why not? He's dead. He's dead. Even though he promised he's going to come back after three days. Even though the women came and said, Guys, the tomb is empty. We were hoping. So, their hope and their expectation was that this Jesus, this Messiah, was going to redeem them in the sense of somehow delivering them from Rome. And I find it kind of fascinating that they use the word redeem because Jesus did redeem on the cross, right? He paid the price, which is what redemption is all about. But they were hoping. And that hope is over. Amy nailed it. It's not hoping anymore. Has there ever been a time in your life where you had a, a hope, an expectation for something that was going to take place, something was going to happen, something big, something significant, something important? Your expectation, you were looking forward to this moment, and it didn't happen. It wasn't going to happen. Where does that leave you emotionally? Beyond sad. Beyond sad. And I read this story and I think, you know, heartbreak is kind of a normal part of life. If you've never experienced any heartbreak, cheer up, you will. Um, it takes different forms. Sometimes it's that uh, girl your sophomore year of high school that you think you just can't spend the rest of your life without her being in it. And she writes you a note in English class and says, I'll always think, you, think of you as my big brother. <laughs> See if you're still awake. Maybe there was a, a job promotion that was hanging out there, and you you felt like you were the most qualified. There were conversations that took place that you were you were going to be promoted. That position was going to be yours. You've been with the company for twenty years. You were the most logical person, but instead they promoted someone else that had only been there for six weeks. We experience in the course of our lives. Disappointment and heartbreak. Probably not on the level that these two dudes experience. But again, 
Jesus shows up. Aren't you glad Jesus shows up? Times of disappointment, times of sadness, times of heartbreak. Jesus shows up. In fact, the scripture says that our God draws near to the brokenhearted. There have probably been times in your life, as there have been in my life, where you experienced the reality of that. Um, For me, it's probably happened more often in times where someone that's been a part of my life has passed away. It's a time of heartbreak. Um, But God draws near. The scripture says he's the father of mercies, the God of all comfort. So here's these guys on the road to Emmaus. They're they're having this heart-stirring discussion. They're telling this heartbreaking story, and Jesus shows up. (laughs) And they're walking along, and Jesus kind of pretends he's going to keep going. It says evening has come, so it's getting, you know, a little later in the afternoon, early evening. And they encourage Jesus to stay with them. And uh, they sit down to a meal. They're reclined at the table as they would in that culture and Jesus breaks the bread for them and blesses it and in that moment in the providence of God what happens it's Jesus and then he's gone it's like what that's not fair that's not right he shows up we recognize him he's gone But in this experience, what I call the heart-burning experience that they shared, uh, Jesus has opened the scriptures to them. Luke records the fact that he calls them foolish. They're, they're, um, in verse 25, they're foolish and slow of heart. That word foolish is the idea of being dull. You're just dull. You, you, just, you don't get it. <laughs> Uh, you're, you foolish and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Does that verse raise any questions in your mind? That verse should raise lots of questions. So I'm, I'm reading this and I'm going, so... What scriptures did Jesus share with them? What passages would he have quoted for them? These were good Jewish boys, right? They grew up being taught and instructed in the scriptures from the time they were this this tall. Many Jewish men had memorized large portions of their scriptures. The Torah. The problem these guys had... As I'm reading this, I'm going, so the problem isn't with the scriptures. The problem is with the the people, the readers. Jesus didn't say to them, you know, guys, that Old Testament is so hard to read. I understand. The Torah, oh, man. I know, Leviticus is just... (laughs) Jesus doesn't do that. 
You see, the, the problem isn't with the scriptures. The problem is with the problem is with us. <laughs> and I, I see Jesus explaining the scriptures to them. Every portion, the Torah, the Psalms, the prophets, you know, the whole, the whole of it. And I, I'm starting to form in my mind. So, where did Jesus start? Did he go all the way back to Genesis three fifteen? The first indication in Scripture that there was going to be a, a deliverer. The first inkling we get. Did he go through some of the Psalms that talked about the, the suffering Messiah? Did he did he take him to Isaiah chapter fifty three? All we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It pleased God to crush him. I, I have all these passages going through my head. What did Jesus open up to them? <laughs> the problem isn't with the scriptures. The problem is with us. And so I read this passage and I, I'm reminded afresh of the high, the high value and the high need in your life and my life to spend time in this book. Can you imagine these two unknown, non-celebrity dudes have this encounter with the greatest teacher to ever live, discussing the greatest themes and truths to ever be shared, from the greatest book ever written. I'm not sure they still got it. But when their eyes were opened, they recognized Jesus. Some of that must have clicked, right? What was the number one thing that clicked for them? Jesus appears. They don't know who he is. All of a sudden they recognize him and he disappears. What's the number one truth that they then understood? He's alive! <laughs> He's alive. He is risen. The women were right. <laughs> uh, who said they usually aren't? Who was that? I was just going to say, who do Man. Dangerous ground there. <laughs> So if we have the scriptures, are we then accountable to read and know and to the best of our ability understand yes. and do what it says? Logically follows. Do you and I understand every single thing that's written between these leather covers? Yeah. No. I got more questions than answers every day. But Jesus didn't tell them that, you know, it's no big deal. That Old Testament's a tough book to read. He didn't tell them that. Several years ago, George Barna, who's a researcher, uh, statistician guy, uh, he wrote um, a small book called The State of the Church. And one of the things he talked about in The State of the Church was church people that were surveyed their knowledge of their Bible. So, take a wild guess how many people that were surveyed that would be people like us in churches like ours, what percentage of people 
We're able to name all four of the gospel writers. 52% were able to name all four. This was a little tougher. How many could identify the names of the 12 apostles? That's a tough one. I was surprised that only, that, uh, only 52% couldn't identify. So you got Peter and Andrew, James and John, Bartholomew, Matthew, Levi, Judas, don't forget Judas, Nathaniel, Thomas, Philip. So we're doing pretty good. <laughs> Here's, here's the kicker for you. 61% of American Christians think that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. <laughs> well, he wasn't Greg Laurie? No. 71% of American Christians think God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. So at the end of this summary of the Bible, George Barner writes these words. Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't know what it says. That's tragic. That's tragic. And so, kind of at the very heart of this story, there's a, there's a core truth that has kind of spoken into my heart in the last couple of weeks as I've been reflecting on this. Yes, Jesus is alive. And His Word is alive. And it still sets hearts on fire today. In order for your heart to be set on fire by God's Word, what must happen? You must, you must read it. And I think here's these two unknown guys walking and talking with Jesus, full head knowledge of so much scripture, and they describe their encounter with Jesus when he opens it up and explains it to them. And they say to themselves, didn't our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us and opened the scriptures? And I want to tell you, that God's Word still sets hearts on fire today. But that does presuppose that we're, we're reading it. John 5.39 says this. In fact, this is a quote that Jesus said to the Pharisees. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And so even the Pharisees, he says, you, you search the scriptures, but you miss it. They testify about me. And the challenge in your life and my life is to be men and women who are investing time in this book. And it always amazes me when I have these conversations with people that do not have time. Because when I start asking questions, they have t- 
time to watch television every day. They have time to be engaged with social media every day. They have time to go to Netflix or Rumba, Roomba, whatever that stuff is. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't trying to point you out. <laughs> You're my tech whiz, so you, you can tell me what it really is called. I don't know. But it's, it's like we have time for so many other things. And do we have time for this book? Do we have time for King Jesus to speak into our hearts and into our lives that that our, our, our hearts would be on fire with God's truth? I have a friend who tells me he has the the mind span that lasts about the time about the life of a house fly I think this is he says I I can't read I just I don't read I I just I I can't concentrate well sometimes those people are audio learners and you just get an app on your phone that uh, plays it out loud you can listen to it I do that sometimes in my car Um, anyway Charles Spurgeon said, I would recommend you either believe God up to the hilt or else not to believe at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. There is no logical standing place between the two. And I put a little poem in your outline this morning that uh, I like a lot. There are some who believe the Bible and some who believe in part and some who trust with reservation and some with all their heart. But I know that its every promise is firm and true always. It is tried as the precious silver, and it means just what it says. It is strange we trust each other and only doubt our Lord. We will take the word of mortals and yet distrust his word. But oh, what light and glory would shine o'er all our days if we would always remember that he means just what he says. Several years ago, I was up at Hume Lake Christian Camps up in the St. Gabriel Mountains that way. And uh, I found this plaque on a rock identifying this spot as the place where a pastor had knelt and prayed at a time of crisis in his, his thought processes. He found himself struggling with the truth of God's word. Did he really trust it? Did he really believe it? Did he really count it as God's word and God's truth? And how could he stand up and speak and preach if he had these doubts and these, these anxieties about the, the book that was the basis of his, his messages? And as he knelt and prayed, he told the Lord that he didn't understand it all, had lots of questions. But he was committing himself that day by faith to trust in the promises of this book and to believe that God has spoken and that he means what he says. In September of that year, 1949, that man who knelt and prayed, Billy Graham, began a three-week crusade in Los Angeles that lasted for two months. That ministry flowed out of prayer prayer of struggle, prayer of commitment to that book. 
we need to have a similar commitment to embrace God's truth. To believe that today, yes, Jesus is alive. Yes, His Word is alive. And God's Word still sets hearts on fire today. Lord, help us to embrace that truth this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not given to us simply the religious experiences of good people. You haven't just given to us the the wisdom of the wisest, brightest minds of time. But rather you've entrusted into our care your very thoughts, your very words. Lord, might it be true for each one of us this morning that there might be a fresh commitment to be men and women of, of your book. Men and women committed to, to reading, meditating, living the truths that you have entrusted to us. Might we, like Cleopas and his companion, have that experience of hearts being on fire as we interact with the truth of your word. Do that for each one of us is our prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.